It is Monday, April 8th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike is traveling with the London Knights today. Knights play the Guelph Storm in Guelph tonight. London leads their second-round playoff series two games to none. As you heard on 980 CFPL yesterday, London beat Guelph 7-0 in Game 2. A win tonight would put a stranglehold on the series. You can hear the game on 980 CFPL starting at 6.30 with the pregame. Puck drop is at 7 o'clock. So that's how you will get your mic fixed today if you want it. In the meantime, we've got a busy show for you today. We'll be talking about workplace violence in long-term care homes in Ontario in a few moments. Also this hour, we'll be talking about the cost to remove Springbank Dam from the Thames River. We'll be talking about the situation facing downtown business owners and commuters with the core construction underway right now. Jim Yanchula with the city will join us. Next hour, we will have a special Monday roundtable. We will be discussing items that don't usually get discussed on a roundtable. Ali Chabar, Roger Carancy, and Nathan Carancy will join me. Up first, let's talk about workplace violence at long-term care homes in Ontario. Two reports will be released today that show staff at long-term care homes are at their breaking point. The study, titled Breaking Point Violence Against Long-Term Care Staff, is a just-published, in-depth study of violence against long-term care staff in Ontario. It was conducted by two Canadian researchers, Dr. James Brophy and Dr. Margaret Keith. They are associated with the University of Windsor and the University of Stirling in the UK. They will be talking about this at a news conference this afternoon at the London Public Library. It's actually underway right now. So earlier today, I had a chance to talk to Dr. Brophy. Here is that conversation. Let's start by uh, talking about the situation in general in, in long-term care homes, because there's a lot to get to here. Uh, how be- what's the situation like? And how bad is it? Well, it's um, it's very disturbing. Um, one of the, I think, if I could summarize what we found in in doing uh, focused interviews in seven different communities across Ontario, involving uh, a whole range of um, healthcare staff uh, that worked in thirteen different facilities, long-term care facilities, we found that uh, physical violence. Uh, verbal abuse, racial and sexual harassment, and sexual assault was so widespread uh, that it literally had become normalized. It was viewed as part of the job. And this was extremely disconcerting uh, given the high prevalence of, of, of women that work in these facilities. And you couldn't help but see a parallel to violence against women in our society as a whole to what was occurring in this work environment. And this is something where there are obviously workers, uh, long-term care homes, but also patients that are are at risk as well? Well, we know that that there has been resident-on-resident violence. It's been well reported, and even some cases of staff-on-resident violence. But the most prevalent violence in health care and in long-term care is resident and family on staff violence. It's the most common uh, violence. And that was the one that we were focused on. We were asking the long-term care staff to describe to us their lived experience and work experience uh, in these facilities. How does this come to be? Well, I think um, in, in the scientific literature, 
um, like research studies, since certainly 2010, there's been increasing investigations and concern about the high level of violence in the whole healthcare system. Um, in Canada, there has been some researchers, Dr. Pat Armstrong, for instance, at York University, that have been doing major studies o- over the last decade, comparing, for instance, uh, violence levels of violence in uh, Canadian long-term care facilities uh, versus Scandinavian countries. And just to say very quickly, um, what she found was that there was six times more violence occurring uh, in Canadian long-term care facilities than in Scandinavia, which is to point toward things that can be done to remedy this really public health crisis. But I think what started this particular study that we, Margaret Keith and I have been engaged in was um, the concern by the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, CUPE, over violence that was incurring to their members, first in the hospitals. Uh, you may remember uh, we did an initial study two years ago looking at violence in the Ontario hospital system, which was also incredibly disturbing and pervasive. But in the course of that work, um, more and more um, healthcare staff in long-term care facilities started to come forward. And based on their experience and about and their request, uh, the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions decided to collaborate and we launched, they launched a second study and involved uh, Margaret Keith and I. I'm just trying to, you know, you describe different types of violence. Like, I can understand a situation, not that it's it should be taken for granted or it should be, uh, you know, just accepted that it, this happens and it's part of the the job, which it should not be. I can understand, like, physical violence. The sexual, the sexual violence seems a little bit different in terms of just how that comes to be. I, for there to be multiple types of violence... Uh, in in the workplace the, that comes about is is that is that normal or is that unusual that there are multiple forms of this type of violence uh, for, for in the workplace? Well, um, I, I think in in work environments in which women make up a substantial majority, this is unfortunately more common than the public. Uh, or society is aware or is prepared to acknowledge. Um, I've been involved in occupational health for 40 years, and I was horrified, shocked uh, by uh, what was being told and what I found in other studies and in the scientific literature. It, it is so pervasive now that it is, as I said, it's being treated as just part of the job. Um, you raise questions about, for instance, sexual assault uh, and harassment. Um, of course, sexual assault is not as common as, as physical uh, violence or, or verbal abuse, which is, uh, you know, in some cases a, a daily occurrence. But we heard very graphic and very disturbing uh, incidents of sexual assault in in um, in the focus groups and the group interviews that we did that you know, involved a, a personal support worker, for instance, trying to give a, a resident a, a shower and being pinned from behind by this person who tried to ass- sexually assault her, 
Uh, she called and called for help. Nobody heard her. She was pinned in there. This went on for a very long time. She finally was able to break free. free. She ran out of the shower. Uh, she uh, tried to pull herself together and then realized that she had left a resident in the shower alone. I don't know how she did this, but she got herself mentally together enough that she went back in and was able to get him out without further assault, um, then approached the, the supervisor and was told, well, you're not physically hurt, like, go back to work. She was asking to be to go home. She literally was so uh, traumatized uh, by all of this. And this is a common experience, this part, after such assaults or physical or mental or verbal assaults, there's so much unsupported emotional trauma going on that it further, uh, you know, psychologically harms the victims. And so, and when this particular incident was being reported, almost everybody in the group was not only nodding as if they shared that experience, but in tears as they re- recounted their their experience and their and their sense of frustration because they're not allowed to speak out publicly about this. This is why people like myself and the general public, even that at study in this area, were so surprised and horrified by it, because the healthcare workers fear that they'll be fired or disciplined if they speak publicly about what's going on. As we look at ways to improve this and change this, I can, just listening to that, I can understand why, you know, one of the terms used to describe where staff are at right now, they're at the breaking point. I can certainly, it's clear to see why they would be. Uh, how, do we, how do we improve that? I guess the first step is we've got to make uh, it possible for staff and anyone who's been um, uh, the victim of workplace violence to be able to come forward in a manner where they are not punished for reporting something that should be reported. Absolutely. Um, there's now a private member's bill in the Ontario Parliament calling for whistleblower protection so that healthcare staff can speak publicly uh, about incidents of violence to bring this issue to the public and to the, pro- and to the regulators and so on and so forth. So there's definitely that legislative change is long overdue, and we will never get our control on this unless the people that are victimized are being uh, allowed and encouraged and protected uh, to speak out. Um, there's also, um, you know, we'll never fix this problem if we continue along with the current levels of staffing and funding that are going into these institutions. Um, it, it just isn't possible for the healthcare staff to adequately care for people that are elderly at the end of life, you know, that are suffering all kinds of issues of impairment and, and, and so on. Um, also, um, OCHU has been asking and is supporting uh, a private member's bill federally that would, uh, and when there was an assault in a healthcare setting for, or a healthcare worker, that at sentencing, if, if the person was deemed to be mentally competent, that that would take, that, that would be, you know, would be accounted for in the sentencing, which is what's going on, for instance, for transit workers in Toronto, and I think probably across the province. So 
Healthcare, I mean, this, the health of the healthcare workers is a barometer of the health of the healthcare system. And if the public is unaware and is being kept in the dark about the crisis that's going on there, then I think all of us ultimately uh, will suffer from that. Just finally, um, when you have a system that is turning its back, essentially, and, and looking away from um, from what's what's happening here, how difficult is it going to be to bring about change? Because it, this, this does not sound like a system that is going to do this willingly. It's almost, it looks, it sounds almost like a top-down change, but it does not sound like a system that is going to embrace any sort of change. No, I, I think, I think you know, uh, unfortunately, long-term care has been turned over increasingly to the private sector, and um, where over half the facilities are privately owned, which is to say driven by profit. And so they're going to be very reluctant to employ, uh, you know, the kind of resources that might, you know, affect their bottom line, even though they may be more than necessary. So we really, in the first instance, need the provincial and federal government, but particularly the provincial government, to acknowledge that there is a serious crisis in these facilities, that funding and staffing are both key to that. And unless, you know, the public starts to really, um, you know, pressure uh, politicians to really take a solid look at this, it's going to be very hard to rectify this, this, this crisis. And, you know, as, as someone who's aging, as we all are, I recognize that this has something to do with everybody. This has something to do with, you know, certainly my generation and, and my demographic. And I think, you know, there's more and more of us that are arriving at that stage in life where these, these issues of health care and long-term care are central for our well-being. And um, so I, I do agree with you that, you know, it's going to be a long time, but uh, all these journeys start with the first step. That is Dr. James Brophy in conversation with me earlier today. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Back to the River will be on the agenda at London City Hall today. It'll be discussed as part of the City Council's efforts to finalize their strategic plan for the next four years. Something else that'll be on the agenda, and we'll see how much discussion it generates amongst members of Council, is the Springbank Dam itself. Previous Council, you may remember, decided not to move ahead with repairing the dam, which was the right decision. An environmental assessment determined the river was much healthier the way it is without the dam in place. It would have cost millions of dollars to fix, and the last time we tried to do that, it did not exactly go well. The environmental assessment was for the One River Project, which included the dam and the Back to the River plan. As I said, Council will discuss the future of the Back to the River plan, but lost in all of this is, what do we do with the dam itself? Robert Huber is the president of the Thames River Anglers Association. He joins us now to talk about this. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for uh, reaching out to me. There's been a lot of discussion about the uh, Back to the River project lately, but not a lot about what we should do with the Springbank Dam. Uh, The previous council decided uh, we aren't going to move ahead with fixing it, but uh, since then it seems as though what we do with the dam is a little bit fallen by the wayside. I'd have to agree. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not there's strong economic reasons to be doing the projects at the Forks um, involving the 
bridge that uh, over the forks itself and some of the other work up there. And I think the decision around Springbank Dam has kind of slipped into the wayside. The environmental assessment that was done that ultimately uh, was a, a, a major factor in the previous council deciding not to move ahead with and, and fix it was was connected to the back to the river stuff. Uh, but um, you will be speaking at the Strategic Priorities and Policy Committee meeting today. Uh, what are you going to be bringing up and what do you hope to hear from councillors? Um, well, our primary concern is that uh, part of receiving that report and moving ahead with the decision uh, regarding what happens with one river uh, we have a lot of new councillors that are on uh, on staff that have inherited this decision, and then there's also councillors from the previous uh, previous group that were involved in it. And we want them to realize that the economics or the how they've priced out the cost of either partially or fully decommissioning the dam lacks uh, a lot of detail that can have a huge impact on what path they decide to take. Whereas other projects that have been highlighted uh, for the rest of the forks are uh, quite detailed in, in the way that they were communicated. And there's still concerns with whether or not that's a good uh, use of taxpayer money. What would you like to see happen with with the dam? Well, what I'd like to see right now is for the the city council members and the members of the of the committee to go back and ask the staff and the consultants to come up with some better figures that show more accurately how much it's going to cost to either get rid of the dam altogether or to partially decommission it and what those costs are going to be to Londoners over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, just maintenance and upkeep and things like that, and to take a second look at how they made that decision in terms of whether to fully decommission it or partially decommission it and, and what that recommendation will be. So your main concern then is just have, we don't, don't have the information we were told we should have by this point. It's, you're not necessarily leading in one direction, it's just we just need the information so we can see which is the right direction to lean. Exactly. Yeah, the decision of whether to partially or fully decommission it, or the recommendation that was made by staff and council last fall, the margin was so thin between those two areas that uh, it really requires that extra detail in order for this to be something that our current council can stick with. This is not the first council that's had this type of a decision before them. What can we possibly learn maybe from other municipalities in the province who have been in a similar situation? That's a good question, actually. Um, Part of what I was going to share tonight is... uh, In most cases, when uh, the idea of removing a structure from the water is presented to council, they will uh, project the costs to be much higher than they actually are, which discourages councillors from considering that option. And then once those dams are taken out of the river, they realize they're not nearly as expensive as they thought they would be. So we have a whole bunch of data on that that we'd like to share with them. The reality is is we don't have a big pond full of sediment uh, behind the Springbank Dam that we need to figure out what to do with. This is not a hard project for them to be able to go in and figure out what it's going to cost to do. Ultimately, what would you hope is some like a deciding factor in the ultimate decision? Uh, one, one of the reasons a lot of people argued, and by the end of it, virtually everyone was arguing in terms of not fixing the dam, is because the river now is healthier than it was before. There was uh, evidence that showed if we were to fix the dam, some of the species that have flourished over the past years uh, may not as well. I, obviously, in, environmental concerns should be front and center in terms of whatever we end up doing with the dam, either half or fully decommissioning it. Exactly. Um, I agree. Uh, you know, we've made the decision not to fix it. That's clear. The decision of how to go about removing it, in both cases, the impact on the local environment in that area would be very, it'd be a disruption. But the long-term value or benefit of getting rid of that dam altogether 
This is a one-time decision, a one-time cost that we have money sitting in the bank that can pay for it to be done. Um, it's not a difficult thing to do at all. But if they decide to, you know, just take the doors off it and leave it sitting in the river, there's still going to be costs associated every single year with making sure that it remains safe, uh, that the concrete isn't starting to crumble and fall into the river, all sorts of different things. And I don't know if we're necessarily weighing those decisions out uh, in the, you know, in the documents that have been shared with the public so far. Do you have any thoughts on how the future of the Back to the River project might influence whatever council ends up doing uh, with with the dam itself, or are those are they now completely split, or could one impact the other? Do you think? Well, you know, we had to support One River because of the the ideology behind it that you know getting to the decision on One River was going to help us to get to the decision on Springbank Dam. Right, we were roped into it uh, one way or the other. Now they've uh, split that apart so that they can decide to move ahead with making decisions with Springbank Dam, regardless of what they decide to do with the forks of the Thames and that sort of thing. Um, kudos for that, right? That's how it should have been right in the beginning. The, the challenge, I guess, is that, you know, Sean, Councillor Lewis makes a good point that why are we spending money on these projects to try to, like, build stuff next to the river when there's bigger issues like updating our infrastructure underneath the roads and uh, improving the sewage treatment and runoff and things like that that we can do to make the river healthier. And that if we're earmarking money to spend on bringing people back to the river, let's first and primarily focus on improving the river health. Then go ahead and, you know, dress it up. Um, but right now, there's no compelling reason to go and build a, you know, a concrete beach down next to the river. I will be interesting, interested to see what uh, council uh, says with uh, with regards to this, because when I was just going over the agenda, I saw your name, I saw what you wanted to bring forward, and I thought, oh yeah, you know, it's something we haven't talked about lately, and had you not, you know, come forward to want to talk about this, I don't know if we'd be talking about it right now, because there's been zero discussion whatsoever. You know, if it wasn't for a few councillors that let me know every once in a while when agenda items switch from one committee to another, or when something's back in the uh, on the, the calendar... There's times that we'd miss it, too. Robert, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. That's Robert Huber, president of the Thames River Anglers Association. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. I want to talk about the report that came out last week about climate change in this country. The report was commissioned by Environment and Climate Change Canada. It came out last Monday. It was called, quite simply, Canada's Changing Climate Report, and it said that we are warming at twice the rate as the rest of the world. Some of the findings were that the warming climate is going to make extreme hot temperatures more frequent and more intense, that northern Canada is warming at more than three times the global average, that oceans around the country have warmed, they're becoming more acidic, and that precipitation is expected to increase across the country, although summer rainfall may decrease. The reaction from all of that, as I saw it, was a collective shrug. For some people, climate change is a passion. For others, not so much. To talk about this, we're joined by Matthew Hoffman. He's director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, great to, great to talk to you. Well, what sort of reaction do you get from people when you talk about climate change? Because when I do it, you know, it's, it's hit and miss. For some people, it's a big concern. It's something they, you know, read about. For other people, it's not on the top of their list. 
Yeah, I would say I have the same reaction from people. I mean, often when I'm giving talks to the public, people that come to hear me speak are really concerned. And so I get a lot of people that are, are frankly scared and are trying to fight off despair about what they hear is coming. And then I talk to people who it's really not on their radar. They're, you know, they see the news, but it's it's not part of their daily lived experience. And they're they're curious, um, but but not really engaged with it. And then occasionally I run into people that um, are sort of vociferous climate deniers who want to sort of challenge me and challenge the climate science on on whether this is a problem at all. What percentage would you say uh, are the people who are the deniers? Because you know I can understand you know people like one of the issue one of the problems for talking about climate change is uh, oftentimes it's the future, even though twenty thirty is really not that far in the future in terms of eleven years. But use that you know, often we're talking about twenty thirty, twenty seventy, you know twenty one hundred, you know t- well into the future when people are just worried about you know making sure they're they get their uh, bills paid and they get the kids to hockey practice or whatever. I can understand why um, for some people they've got other more pressing concerns, but uh, in terms of the deniers, how many uh, deniers do you encounter? Because my personal experience is less than before, but you might have a, a higher number. No, I think it's less than before, and I think it's an awfully small number. I, I think that uh, the the volume of climate denying uh, sort of just in terms of how loud they shout, is much greater than the actual numbers. And I think that too often the, those, the impression of large-scale climate denial gets uh, inflated because they're so vociferous and so loud about it. Um, I think, and I think you're right. I think that it is a diminishing number. If you look at opinion polls, you know, upwards of 60, 70, 80 percent of people now think that we should be doing more on climate change. And so I think climate denial is also tougher and tougher to sustain in the face of just observation. When you see the fires in B.C., when you see the flooding across multiple areas of Canada, and you see Arctic melting, it's, it's just tougher and tougher to deny just on the, on the basis of pure observation. Well, I wonder, you know... Uh if the 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 general thought amongst people who aren't too concerned about it now might start to change like i've done some interviews and talked to some people who've done some research in terms of you know like a lot of like uh, our lakes are getting warmer and so our lakes are going to freeze over as much as they, they have in the past and canada's got a lot of lakes uh what is like 75% of the uh, freshwater lakes in the entire world and so that's one area where you don't have to wait for you know 50 years from now to see an impact you can start to see it right now yeah, and I think that that's. I think we're we're moving towards a tipping point in people's concern and urgency around this issue, precisely because that disconnect between lived experience and the sort of description of catastrophes that are going to come fifty, sixty, seventy years from now has really shrunk. That that disconnect, people are seeing and feeling different aspects of climate change now, and I think as that lived experience of living with climate change. Uh, becomes more and more apparent, I think you're going to see more and more urgency, more and more concern around this problem. Are, are you surprised that, it be, that climate change became, or maybe still is, as polarizing as it has been? I, I am and I'm not. Um, I am in the sense that North America and Australia are kind of, uh, I won't say unique, but are kind of special in the 
the way that climate change politics is polarized. If you look at most of Europe, if you look at other places in the world, people argue about what to do on climate change, but not whether to act. And uh, so it's a much less polarized position. I mean, everybody thinks, or across the political spectrum, most people think in most places in the world that we need to take serious action. And there's big fights about how to take that serious action. Um, But, you know, I think that North America, Australia, with heavily resourced sectors, with polarized politics to begin with, and climate change uh, slots right into that. It's interesting too. I mean, I, I you know I'm always interested in you know how we debate certain topics, and anti-vaxxer is a big one these days. And uh, you know whether you're talking about climate or vaccinations, or you are talking about uh, anything, the, the or guns. You know the, the way we talk about these things is important as talking about them because. Um, I think the way we talk about it is the real problem because sometimes people talk at, they don't talk to, and your that first impression you make on an issue can have lasting effects in terms of how you treat that subject going forward. I think that that's right. And I think that one way to tamp down some of the polarization on this is to, to realize that we're going to be living with climate change. It's not a choice of living with climate change or not. It's a choice of how we do that. And I think that one of the things that really needs to come out, I I wish on both sides, frankly, that we we talk less about trade-offs because there's a lot that we are going to be acting on climate change to make our cities more livable, to make our environment cleaner in multiple ways. To, to make life better for a lot of people. Now, there's going to be transition and there's going to be disruption, and but that's also an opportunity to, to work on social justice, to work on equality in ways that can, can make our society stronger and more resilient. And I think that if we could get to a point where we're sort of pulling on that rope together, that's and having real debates about how to pull on that rope together, but get to the point where we're all saying, you know what, we have to get through this to a, to a better society, to a low-carbon, resilient, equitable society on the other side, and, and start having that conversation rather than, you know, are we going to f- fix climate change or not or, or things along those lines. Yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have a conversation on what's the best way to put a price on carbon rather than uh, we don't need to do it at all because climate change is, isn't as big a concern as people think it should. It is. I think that's right. Uh, Matt, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's great to talk to you. That's Matthew Hoffman, Director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Uh, Construction season is upon us. Are you ready? A lot of construction will be concentrating in the downtown, and for good reason. Dundas Place is underway. Construction at York and Talbot has started. And as of this morning, work begins on the King Street new cycle track. To talk about this, we are joined by Jim Yanchula from the City of London. Thanks for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you about this. With uh, Dundas Place, uh, York and Talbot, and now uh, the King Street cycle track underway, that's a lot of construction all at once in a concentrated area. 
how are you going to be able to manage that? Well, we're trying to warn people ahead of time that they need to spend some thought about their journey before they go on it, uh, and also make sure that people are familiar with the routes that they take through downtown, because it will be concentrated if you're an eastbound traveler through King Street due to Dundas and York being uh, closed for uh, instruction for the whole summer. The King Street project, though, that'll be about a six-week project. So for the next six weeks, it'll be particularly punchy. So uh, King Street should be about six weeks. Uh, York and Talbot maybe finishes after that, and Dundas Place after that? Yeah, York and, and Dundas Street will go to the end of the construction season. We sure are targeting for finishing up in November if we can. How did the uh, first phase of construction go for Dundas Place, and what can you take from that for the second phase now? Well, the first phase went um, a little slower than we thought, mostly because we had surprises in the weather and some uh, unexpected utility discoveries under the corner of Dundas and Richmond. Uh, those we can't really ever control for. What we did learn, though, on the Dundas project is that when people know ahead of time where the uh, bottlenecks are, they find their ways around them. And that's what we're here for, to help them do that. Just to kind of build off of that, what can Londoners kind of expect uh, when they're in the downtown uh, this year? And you, you kind of touch upon some of this, but uh, there's, a, there's a lot of different uh, parts here to it. Well, one of the things is traffic will be moving slower. So, um, you know, use all of the patience that you can during peak traffic times. Really, during the day and after the uh, commuter traffic is finished, it's quite navigable downtown. It's just um, during the peak periods that are the trouble parts. Uh, make sure also that you look for the orange signs. A lot of people don't pay attention to the signs, and they're there to help you guide where you can and can't turn left, where the roadblocks are up ahead, so that if you want to make an early right or left turn, you can do that. Um, I know that there's a lot of things to pay attention to in a downtown environment, but these are there to help. I think it's also important uh, to remind, remember for people who are just, you know, walking around in the downtown, uh, sometimes um, you, you think, okay, well, this street's blocked, so I can just cross. And, you know, near uh, the, the city center uh, downtown near uh, King, there's like some streets where there's still, uh, you know, construction workers and there's a parking lot that's still open that, you know, cars are still coming and going. So uh, uh, people who are just walking around the downtown should be aware of what streets are closed, what's not. And even if there is maybe a street that's closed, still look both ways because some traffic could be still milling about. There's always traffic milling about, and it's important to remember that there's the regular traffic that goes through downtown and the construction vehicles, um, and so they, they have their warning lights and their sounds there for a reason. If you're a pedestrian, um, and especially if you're a pedestrian on Dundas Place, uh, we've made a, a huge effort to make sure that you know where you can and can't walk through those two blocks of the project. We've got maps up at all of the intersections from every approach, letting you know ahead of time before you go down a blind alley that um, where you can go and where you can't go. I found that was really helpful, uh, certainly with the Dundas place uh, during the first phase, so you could say, okay, well, if I want to walk down this street, because a lot of these businesses are still open, uh, so if I want to walk down here, this is open here, I can get there, but if I want to cross the street, maybe i got to cross here. Those maps, maps for me were, were quite helpful. 
Well, I'm glad to hear they're helpful for you. They're they're there for everybody. We want to remind people that businesses and institutions like the library and Fanshawe, they're all open. And we don't mean for you to walk all the way around a block. We even have mid-block connections so that you don't have to go to the next block in order to get to the other side of the street. And those are part of the project's uh, pedestrian accommodations. Uh, those maps are one way Londoners can maybe deal with the construction. There are other ways that maybe the uh, Londoners can maybe help themselves before they come down if they don't uh, frequent the downtown? Well, for sure, you if you're a motorist, you should use the Waze app because it can tell you where the congestion is in almost a real-time environment, and that can help you know whether you should maybe skirt the center of downtown altogether and if you're going through, take York Street or Dufferin, for example. Uh, our website is continuously updated at london.ca backslash core construction with all of our latest public service announcements. And there can be one or two a day sometimes if things change in navigation through downtown because we have three major projects right now. The, thing, the cycle track will, won't be a long-term one, but right now we want to make sure we give every option they can to get through and past downtown easily. So there, there's Dundas Place, there's the cycle track. Those are, you know, pretty self-explanatory. There's also York and Talbot, but there's more than just, you know, Dundas Place maybe going on with Dundas. There's stuff underneath the ground, obviously, that we're doing all at once. Maybe if you could explain just a little bit about what the city is doing here with some of these different projects. Well, in, we're, first of all, we're updating our infrastructure. We've got, in, we've got sewers and pipes that are 150 or more years old, because this is, of course, where London started. And we have to upgrade them, if only to make them up to modern standards. The other thing is we've got a lot of development happening downtown. You know, people expect to be able to plug in their computers and flush their toilets and have their dishwashers and all the new high-rises that are going up. And the pipes were developed for three-story buildings, not 30-story buildings. So... We have to update and upgrade our infrastructure. Uh, that gives us the opportunity to make sure that when we are finished doing that, we have a more attractive downtown, too. So better sidewalks, smoother roads, that kind of thing. I know you try to, to stagger some of these projects in terms of when they're done uh, and, and when they happen. That's for the entire city. But in some cases, I mean, some of the stuff, you know, there's a certain time when it's best to do some of these projects. And in this case, we've got these three that are uh, they're concentrated, but it's it's better to do them this time of year than maybe at different points, right? Well, certainly it's always better to do construction in the better weather parts of the year, and that makes it more affordable, too. Um, we were also lucky to have funding provided through the provincial government uh, when we did the Dundas project, and so that made it a, an unusual extra project that we we're doing last year and this year, but for the rest of the um, construction that has to continue downtown over the next eight years, uh, it'll be a smaller, more manageable segment. We, this was a crunch at this period of time because we had stuff that had to be done and we had the money to do it. Jim, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, Devin. I appreciate talking to you. That is Jim Yanchula from the City of London. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
That's it for the first hour of London Live. We've got a lot more to come on the program. However, when we return after the news, we'll have a special Monday roundtable. We don't normally do a roundtable on the show, but I wanted to do one today because there's some items that don't always get discussed on roundtables that we'll discuss today. It should be a good conversation. We'll be joined by Ali Chabar, Nathan Carancy, and Roger Carancy on the other side of the news. In the meantime, we'll pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike's in Guelph today with the Knights as they face the Guelph Storm. Knights lead the series two games to none. Win tonight puts them up three. And you would think uh, gives them the series pretty much, although it's hockey, anything can happen. But... um, so far, so good for the Knights. Uh, pre-game at 6.30, puck drop at 7 o'clock. If you want your mic fix, in the meantime, you're stuck with me. And I'm stuck with, uh, well, I, I invited you guys, so I can't say I'm stuck. <laughs> for a uh, special, uh, Monday, <laughs> special Monday roundtable of uh, Roger Crancy, uh, Nathan Crancy, and Ali Jabbar. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks. I'm not leaving. The pa- you know what he pays me to be here? Oh, yeah, come on. Like, Just There's a lot of figures. A lot, lot of zeros lot, in that figure, yeah, but there are a lot yeah, of figures. A lot of zeros. As people have long said, all the money's in radio. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I, I will say, though, that I did win. Uh, I, I did win, and I know what you were doing, that it was. You did invite the three of us as the most likely to wear shorts on this day. <laughs> I win. You guys lose. I was the one who wore shorts and boat shoes, and I expect my first it place does. ribbon so maybe, in the mail. Maybe to paint a picture for your listeners, just as they can't see us right now. I'm, I've got business cash on right now. Right? Oh, you're Suits. handsome. Today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Come on. I appreciate that. Biz cash, no, no tie on, but biz cash. Uh, Nathan, as he properly said here, is wearing kind of the uh, shorts, uh, right? He's rocking it for oh, 16 degrees. How That's can right. you not I'm wear it? I'm to Barney's after this. We're and, going in. And uh, <laughs> Roger at the very end is wearing the of... Canadian tuxedo. Nathan's yeah. looks like he's a garage rocker out of Seattle. Sure uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. You look like the lead of singer of an 80s uh, band. Want me to sing? Let's do it. Please, Come on. please don't sing. No, this is AM radio. I get paid enough. Just so you know, whatever you guys make, I make double. That's my contract. So, okay. I signed the contract knowing that was there. So, excellent. <laughs> oh, yeah, it comes to you when I die anyway. Okay, so. thank we've, you. We've, we've gone on a tangent. That's on record. Yeah, we've gone on Sorry. a tangent. This is not the Pulse, but Roger does hold the record for most appearances on a uh, Devin wow. Peacock-hosted radio show. Wow. I'm coming I, and out. And I'm coming and for therefore, it. gets paid the most. And I am honored. <laughs> and I am honored. And, and someday, you know, this will come to an end. It'll be like the Bob Cole of uh, yeah. of uh, roundtable guests. And uh, But I hope that day is far out in the distance. It, it is far out in the distance. Uh, the, the, the point of the roundtable is not to talk about uh, issues of the day, so to speak, although issues of the day could play into some of the conversations. It's more just uh, wide-ranging uh, topics that uh, we don't always get time for on the roundtables because the primary focus is, and I believe it should be, on you know news of the day. Uh, but there's other items that we don't always get to talk about that I wanted to talk about on some of these different roundtables. Uh, one of the things I want to start about was more local. Everything else is just kind of generic issues that I think are interesting. Um, it, it, the jumping off point is, is BRT and transit, but uh, we see versions of the kind of reaction for a lot of different topics where we had three-fifths of the BRT plan uh, go forward. Uh, the response was many, from many on social media anyway, was they're going to move away. They're literally going to move out of London. I saw people, reputable people in London say, you know what, I'm going to leave which in my mind, okay, so you're going to quit your job, you're going to sell your house, you're Correct. going to move your kids out of uh, school, you're going to find a new job, 
you're going to buy a new house, you're going to find a new school for your kids, all because bus rapid transit did not happen. In the way that they wanted it. In the way that they wanted it. And so, number one, like, is London a mature city? Because we, like, we see this, and it's not just London, okay? So, like, when Donald Trump is elected president of the United States, people say, I'm moving to Canada. Whenever there's, you know, something unpopular happens, people say, you know what, I'm leaving, I'm moving from X city to Y. Like, but for London, in, in this case, like, are we a mature city? Because it seems like we're, like, every six months in London, the sky is falling. Well, I, first of all, to those people who have made that commitment, many of them in writing on social media, there's a real estate agent to my right and a lawyer to my left. <laughs> we can find a way to get uh, that done if you are, in fact, thinking of uh, moving away. But in all seriousness, um, this is one of those issues. I'm glad we're able to talk about it in this context, not in the kind of heat of the moment, um, where I think a lot of people on both sides of the discussion, on, on many sides, I will say, are left unhappy and there's a very, you know, sour taste in their mouth. Um, I've spoken at length on this program before about some of the people I, you know, look up to and, and politically and otherwise. And one of those people has been John McCain in the past. And I, and I bring him up, the former Republican uh, um, presidential candidate, former senator who has since passed. I bring him up because for the geeks and nerds like me who do read his and, and others' records in uh, Congress and things like that. John McCain was known as one of those people in the legislature who nobody liked because he was always in favor of the process and he was always the one at the end of the situation, you know, to confront his party or the other party saying the process, you know, it's staying true to the process. And, and do we like what we have produced now as the final product after all of this compromise? Do we actually like it or not? And should we start all over? And, um, I start to get that feeling in London right now where you look at the pro BRT people, many of whom are, are very reputable and very, you know, sincere in their support of this pro, this uh, uh, proposal, left very unhappy uh, and rightly so in, in a lot of people's minds because we've left nine figures of, of provincial and federal funding on the table if we move forward. See people on the other side who see that three-fifths of the original plan has gone through and they said, well, that's, you know, I, I was against this proposal in general, or I had other proposed amendments and, and otherwise. And I just get that feeling that there's a lot of people in our community that are not very happy with what has been produced. And I guess my final thing on this is that it's, it's not always the case that if both parties are left unsatisfied, it's one of those truisms they say of both parties, you know, I'll look to you, Ali, on this, if both parties in, in a settlement or a legal uh, a situation are left unhappy, you've probably found the right thing. But sign, I, sign of a good settlement. Right. And I don't believe that's always the case, especially in politics, but um, that, that's where I think we are right now. So I think there are certain circumstances when a government, federal, provincial, municipal, enacts laws, uh, proposed laws, where there's legitimately people say, uh, I'm leaving. Uh, this, for the record, BRT in London is not one of them. But if you're in Quebec Correct. right now and the government of Quebec is saying, hey, Jewish man who wears a yarmulke, hey, Muslim lady who wears a hijab, hey, Sikh man that wears a turban, we're going to pass a law. And that law is going to preclude you from being a judge, a teacher, a principal, a crown attorney, something in the public sector. And that law is enacted. I think that those people legitimately have to ask themselves whether that's the society that they can live in, raise their family in, get an education in. Yep. But that that really strikes to the core fundamental question of where they fit into the society that enacts these uh, limitations based on that. 
Let's compartmentalize it for a second. So push that example I saw I, I just cited aside and compare and contrast, juxtapose that with BRT because uh, three-fifths of the plan was adopted as opposed to four-fifths or, you know, the entire thing. You have people that are now coming out saying online, in writing, you know what, this city is backwards, this city's regressive, this city can't, doesn't think for to the future, I'm leaving. I, I Personally, I respect everybody's, uh, you know, entitlement to say within reason almost anything they want to say, but... I find it kind of absurd and 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 juvenile when Agreed. somebody would actually say that. No, there's there's not much left to be said after what's just been said uh, regarding that. And and uh, you know this whole BRT the the issue. And I know we don't want to talk about uh, specifics. When when inform when misinformation has been out in the public for as long as it has, uh, and, and when people are on one side who. There were so many things from that particular side that came out as being non-factual. Um, uh, you know, um, what's the other term that Kelly Con- Conway used? Uh, Kellyanne Conway used alternative oh, facts. A lot of terms. Yeah, <laughs> the alternative facts that came out, and then you have people whine about the fact that they didn't get it the way they wanted. Uh, th- that's wrong. Uh, you live in a democracy. A democracy is des- decided by the majority. Minority rights are listened to, and they try, I think in this country, we, try, we do a good job of trying to listen and do the best we can when minority rights, or when minority, uh, minority opinions. decisions or, or, or um, opinions come forward, you try your best to incorporate that. Other countries wouldn't even consider it. You have part of a BRT that's here, and they're looking at other things to, to incorporate, but the, the information that that people would require to make those decisions just hasn't been here or has not been correct, has not been right. So I think most people made a decision with the best information they had. Um, and, and for those who want to complain and whine, I remember there was a member of council when I was on council who said this, this city is too big by so many hundreds of thousands of people and that we should all let people, if they want to go, go. There are tons of people that would gladly take their spot in this city. Everywhere. The, uh, the, the jobs that would open up, I'm sure that they would fill them up 10 times over. So if people want to threaten that, they want to say that, and they want to be juvenile about that, let them go and be juvenile somewhere else because in this city, we don't need that type of discussion. So real quick before we, we break, but London, mature city, yes or no? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, you can't, can't have these type of... Heated comments made in on social media really color the city as a whole. Uh, is London mature, mature city? Yeah, it is. I mean, like every city, you talk about Windsor, Kitchener, London, Ottawa, Montreal, big cities, small cities. You're always going to have these types right. of things. It doesn't. We are a mature that. city. There are plenty of immature people that live here, and that is fine. There are plenty of immature people um, everywhere. everywhere. But to and your point, Ali, to kind of tie up both uh, uh, points that have been made here. We should all be so lucky as to live in a city like London, given the alternatives that exist in this world, and to kind of draw a red line as um, it, your favorite infrastructure project of choice doesn't get built <laughs> but, is a little bit but, juvenile. But, uh, and 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 to your point, Ali, something like the Quebec situation is but it stands up. But it's not just Quebec; right. it's people across the world are fleeing war, Correct. conflict, famine instability, can't find jobs, can't, and they all And these the comments that, that equate and, and, the two right, are and a now, disgrace. Right. That's why people legitimately, we have a refugee crisis because of these things. And over here, to your point, yeah. 
well, I'm going to leave because it's three fifths yeah, of the bus yeah. uh, rapid transit yeah. thing was was passed. So you know, sometimes congratulations your, for having the, for being so lucky yeah. as to make and, that and, claim know, in this little, was, little bit of perspective. I was thinking of leaving the city because my son has different uh, political opinions oh, yeah, okay. than I do, but I I, I matured and, and thought it'd be better. <laughs> Very to stay mature here of you, Roger. To teach him better. Thank you. We will uh, break on that <laughs> note before the Carancy family splits apart before our very eyes. I'll represent both of them. Oh, <laughs> All right. Yeah, very good. Yeah. We'll take a break. We're going to come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We continue on with a special London Live uh, roundtable. Joined this uh, week by Ali Jabbar, Nathan Carancy, and Roger Carancy. want to talk about uh, political correctness. Um, it's a buzzword for both social progress and for censorship. Uh, do the benefits of moderating speech outweigh the costs? Is it a, is political correctness detrimental to society? Um, I, I think I've spent more time talking about the context in which we ask this question rather than my position. First of all, I, you know, I, I am uh, strongly in favor of, of freedom of speech. I think we all are um, having these conversations. I think more often than not, uh, the free exchange of ideas leads to the best outcome, even in the most controversial uh, topic. So let's just get that out of the way. But when we talk about f- um, uh, political correctness, essentially what we are talking about, in my opinion, is that the kind of so- social norms in our culture of what topics and what positions are on and off limits, um, just given the type of progress our culture and society has made. And that's in general what we're referring to. And I, it, we're also, when we're talking about political correctness, we're also not talking about the same thing today as we will be talking about in two years. We're also not talking about the same thing today as we were even talking about six months ago, a year ago, five, ten years ago. There are different flag bearers and torch bearers for these issues, especially with the rise of social media and online um, with, with younger people turning more and more to places like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook for their news. These kinds of conversations come up. And when we talk about um, social media and its effect on society, it's one of those, it's one of the most beautiful things in the world is it's also one of the most horrendous things in the world in that we get to see into the true heart of what it, the positions human beings hold and kind of the, the, the truth of humanity and all its darkness and all its light and all these things that we have. There's no, uh, barrier of entry, I suppose. And, um, that's why these conversations continue on. I think there have been plenty of reasonable people carrying the torch for political correctness and things like that. And there's also certain people that, that go a little bit too far. You're talking about your, you know, your Ezra Levant's or Maxim Bernier's Faith Goldie's and those kinds of people in the, in the Canadian context. But, um, you know, it, it's an evolving conversation and it's important to understand where we are at and that it evolves and, and it, it changes as time goes on. Quick note on Faith Goldie uh, earlier today was announced by Facebook. She has been banned by Facebook and all their platforms as well. She's also, I understand randomly being banned from Airbnb. That's kind of almost beside <laughs> the point, but um, okay. I guess maybe she's been banned from a lot of things. Uh, that along. So I think the basic premise of the question is somewhat flawed. Uh, is political correctness a good or bad thing? Uh, I don't think it's uh, uh, an answer that's black and white. I think it lives in the gray somewhere. Uh, and uh, and in some regards, so generally, uh, I, I mean, I remember debating this a couple of years ago at a, at a an event here in town. The basic premise is, I think most rational, logical people would say that political correctness has uh, some utility. Uh, for example, the fact that we have taken uh, 
the racially charged language out of our vernacular is a good thing. The fact that we've uh, we use uh, more, uh, um, you know, we we don't use language when we talk about uh, uh, sexualized language as an example would be a good thing. Where I think, um, so I don't think anybody rationally, logically would say that political correctness doesn't have utility in that regard. Where I think we do um, uh, maybe disagree uh, in some some capacities. Where you look at uh, the detrimental effect of. Uh, um, what political correctness can have on stifling free speech and stifling free expression. Uh, And uh, basically, uh, if you don't know whether what you're saying is uh, acceptable by modern day standards, and I'm not using, like, I mean, again, we don't want to misunderstand what I'm saying. We're not talking the N word. We're not talking, you know, uh, charge language. But I'm saying if I want to express myself and I'm not sure what the what the exact language is that's proper today, and you're stigmatized for expressing yourself that way, that's going to result in two things. Number one, uh, either you being stigmatized and chastised and openly berated for using language that is um, uh, not uh, incendiary, but just not in line with 2019 standards, I guess, by somebody's definition. And second, or it'll result in you saying, you know what, I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm not going to express myself for fear of that. And so um, I think somewhere on the spectrum of political correctness, we have to say, you can't say, well, I'm 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 pro-political correctness or I'm anti-political correctness because it's it's somewhere in the middle there, depending on uh, on, on on the issue and uh, before. Like, that's really the form of the, the debate. No, I, I'm... I'm old school that I'm, and the reason I say that is I'm older than, than most of the guys in this, well, I think everybody in this room. Um, I do my best and have, I don't think, ever spoken badly about um, various races. I, I hate racism. I view people all the same. Do I say bad words, and not racist words, but do I use bad words when I'm not talking on the air here? Yes, I do. Um, am I being politically correct right now? Absolutely, I am. Uh, am I being politi- politically correct when I'm off the air? I let the word slip. I don't use any racist language. I never have misogynist language. I don't don't feel that's right, and I cringe when I hear it. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, there's a time and a place for the words that people use outside of uh, uh, forums like this. And, and I mean, you, you read all the time, you're on Facebook, who knows what it is. They say people who swear are people that you should be friends with because they're smart and they're this and they're that. And I think that's all bull. Uh, but it's a way for people to express themselves, to be a little bit more colorful at times. I think people understand what they're trying to say. I, I think uh, political correctness has gone a little haywire, but I'm not going to put racist comments or misogynist comments in that. I think they're, they have absolutely no place anywhere. Uh, but But other things... Um, it's funny how sometimes I know that there are people out there that are, um, uh, they are the, the spokespeople for various causes. And when you hear them talk, when they're not talking in a place where they, uh, they, they in public or in, in, they are worse yeah. <laughs> than I am. Right. They are worse than most people would think that anybody would be. And, and that's, again, that's one of the things I hate. People know I swear. Uh, people know I use some words that, uh, uh, that are not uh, what, what should be used at times. And uh, again, I, I censor myself every day. I'm I think we can, uh, go ahead. I, I think political correctness is almost a term that needs to be retired because it means something and nothing at the same time. And so like one of the reasons it's, you mm-hmm. know, people on 
both sides can bring it up at different times is because it means whatever they want it to mean. And it, right. it, 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 it essentially, the whole conversation of it would be better without it even, like it, it can retire. It's, it, it just, it has no meaning. It, it, it's, it's so rife. It's so subjective. The term is so subjective that you could literally ask us, Devin, there's four people in this room and, and ask for four definitions of what political correctness is. And right. you could get four different interpretations of what that, what that means. It's like uh, the, the term feminism. Yep. Right. Feminism, you know, again, you could you ask my wife what feminism is, you get one answer. You ask, right. you know, uh, a professor, you get another one. You ask, you know, you can you can get five women who will give you five definitions, and same five men who will give you five definitions of what feminism is. So, so yeah, you're right in the sense that uh, I don't think there is, and that's why I said I kind of reject the basic premise of the question in and of itself. Whether are you, as as political correctness, are you pro or against, or are, is it gone too far? Well, what is it before we? Yeah, it, it is one of those conversations yeah. where we are often left debating what the definition of the very right. uh, phrase that we're debating. So yeah. it, it kind of works in a circle that way. And, and, and it's one of those things where people get really emotionally charged yes. about it. It's it's one. It's not where we can have a disagreement about what the term means and how we apply it. It's, it's some, oftentimes because of the quote unquote camps, uh, you, you're not just wrong. You're you're dumb yep. if, you, if you espouse a different yeah. Uh, yeah. view. And so and, and I think it's a plague on both both. Houses or all houses in that regard, but it just it's it's a it's a it's not an easy one. You can't de- deconstruct it in ten minutes on on the radio show here. So we will uh, leave that there. We'll take a break for news. We come back more of the special Monday roundtable on London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on nine eighty CFPL. We continue on with the Monday roundtable. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. You can hear Mike call the London Knights Guelph Storm game. Game three of the second round series tonight. Pre-games at 6.30, puck drop at 7 o'clock. We are joined in studio for our special Monday roundtable by Nathan Crancy, Roger Crancy, and Ali Chabar. Feel uh, free to say Ali Crancy if you want. Yeah, Ali Crancy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, sounds nice. We way. would gladly, gladly yes. take I don't know if your dad would agree, but yeah. There are days where he'd <laughs> agree. There's probably days your, your where he'd agree. Your dad's like a brother to me anyway. We are joined in studio by uh, Roger C., Nathan C., and Ali C. There we Whoa. go. And Devin P. And Devin P. I'm still wearing shorts, by the way. <laughs> I want to... Uh, I would hope so, Nate. Kind of almost take a... Maybe a... It's a this is maybe the next top, topic. kind of a cousin from our last one. Yep. It's, it's related. Um, I'm always interested in... When we hear from uh, from people who say that we should not be naming uh, mass killers, should we deny mass killers fame? In New Zealand, the prime minister there has uh, said she is not going to. And many uh, uh, news articles I've seen, his face has been blurred out. They have not named him whatsoever. And it has been proven that mass killers study other mass killers. So would it help if we no longer pub- publicly identified them? If it doesn't help, is it still a good practice anyway? Uh, I'm curious where you guys come down on this. I think the answer is yes. I, I think, uh, I mean, I don't think we need a law passed to that effect, but I, I think as a public practice, uh, we shouldn't be giving uh, notoriety to uh, people that, that commit despicable acts like this. And if you want proof of what you just said, the guy in New Zealand uh, that walked into the mosque and killed 54 people uh, had the name of the guy from Quebec City, both names I'm not saying for the exact reason, uh, but he had it uh, uh, written right on his uh, on his rifle. And when he's doing his live stream, which I unfortunately watched, uh, and I can, I'll never unsee some of the things that I saw on that uh, on that video. But as 
the 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 triggers being pulled and the people are are falling. You see the name of the terrorist uh, from Quebec that walked into the Quebec City Mosque and and killed those. So yeah, there has to be. I mean, common sense would dictate that there's uh, a sense of uh, notoriety that they derive from that. And if they if they didn't, why 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 is the guy in New Zealand live streaming this thing on Facebook for everybody to behold? So yeah, the less we talk about them. Uh, and the less uh, we identify them and give them exactly what they want. I mean, that guy in New Zealand right now, uh, he's he's going he's on trial or he's been charged and will be going on trial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you, you know, why why give the guy a platform to uh, uh, is chew his 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 hate yep. and, and even let copycats go? Well, look, if I do the same thing, I can be on TV, too. So, yeah, Here, here's my take. Um, it's, it's a slightly different, but it's um, it's. <laughs> We all believe, I think we want to believe that this guy's going to be put away for life and he'll never see it the light of day again as a free man. Um, I want to guarantee that. So if he is, don't publish his name. But if he's not, let's say he gets off on a, um, uh, insanity plea or something. At some point, that person may be back out in the general public. I want to know who he is. So... Those are the two things I look yep. at. You know, like I said, it's, it may sound stupid, may sound silly, but you never know. The justice system sometimes can do funny things. And uh, if you can guarantee me that that person will be locked away for life and never see the light of day, I have no problem with it. I, if uh, you can't, then I may have a problem with it. Yeah, I, I think just uh, building on both points there, uh, I think we all agree that providing these people uh, notoriety. And, and again, we all kind of defer to the experts on this subject. And, and it is, you know, just a unbelievable thing that we actually need experts on this subject because it is one of those things. So let's just take a pause there and and understand that. But the experts on this subject are saying that giving these people, these criminals, murderers, rapists, all these people, notoriety are, uh, is a bad thing because other people study these other disenfranchised people may or may not have the ability to study them. And perhaps it lead, it increases the likelihood of copycats or other uh, people and copycat ism, I guess you could say, is rampant in that kind of uh, community, if you want to call it that. Um, so I agree with that. But how, I, however, I, I am a little bit apprehensive just because it is important for us to understand that when we do that, when we make a conscious effort to isolate uh, people and not discuss them, ign- ignore them, realistically is what we're doing, the names and all that, what we may be doing, it is possible that we are breeding ignorance and that these things may happen and continue to happen and we don't actually give it the time of day necessary to understand just how bad and just how terrible these acts are. But I don't think we're I don't think the suggestion is that we're ignoring the event in and of itself but just not giving uh publicity to the individual the name we're not naming the person right. that did it right? so so to your point I I'm not I yeah. do not disagree with you but I think one of those things like for example it is very useful for us as a society to understand what inspired this because the fact is what inspired this is as disgraceful a political position racism all of these things as is possible and what the old saying is sunshine is the best disinfectant to show that there is a subculture out there that believes these things that that believes these things to a point that they will act on them that we need to understand the threat and i say this of all of, of anything not just this community and um, I, I, again, I'm not using this, uh, that point to justify naming and putting these people on the front page of uh, you know, every news outlet. What I'm instead saying is we need to be very careful 
that if this is what the experts are saying, and I believe them and I will, Mm -hmm. you know, carry that on, that we do not breed ignorance, that we do at least acknowledge just how disgusting these acts are and these people are. And wherever society settles on this question, what I would hope for is a degree of consistency in terms of its application. Because if we're not going to name the guy that walked into New Zealand and we're not going to name the guy that walked into Quebec and we're not going to name the guy that walked into a synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, what happens because we know we all watch CNN and Fox mm-hmm. when the guy's name is Muhammad or when the guy's name is Ali or when the guy's name is, you know, Correct. something like that. We know that's before there's any concrete evidence that's been verified. We know that that's the lead story, you know. And so what I would what I would hope is if we're going to move that way, which I think we should be, that there is a measure of consistency in terms of how the media. I have no faith. Devin, I love you, but I have no faith in the uh, in either. the in the media yeah. uh, uh, being equal in terms of its application. But I would hope that that would be consistent across the spectrum. And so, that's my that's my point. Yeah, I yeah, suppose yeah. just consistent at uh, application. So, so I disagree um, with not not naming the mass killers' name. Your media, that's automatic. No, no, I mean the reason for my my disagreement is like if we don't want to, I mean, name the person. I, I'm, I'm, I just don't I don't view naming these people as giving them notoriety. It just I, I know people can take notoriety from it. I just personally don't uh, I don't view it as them having notoriety and and they probably do because you're you're sick enough to do this. And so if we say um, X person, you know, no no name is in court today for this and we we have their background so we can learn from how this person got to this point where they felt this was the necessary step to take. I, I, people who are inclined to follow in their footsteps are going to learn from them Anyways. regardless. Right. And so, I mean, if we don't want to, I, I just, I, if, if we want to, if, 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 if the goal is no notoriety, I mean, I, I, does, I, I, I've looked it up since then and I've since forgot, but the guy who went on the shooting rampage in, in Moncton, I know what his name is because I recently looked up, but I don't mm-hmm. know his name. If we were to go in a long enough time, I don't think people would remember who the person in Quebec City was. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I, to be honest, I can't tell you who the guy in New Zealand, what his name was off the top. Their name is almost secondary to it all. So I'm not, I'm not against, you know, the idea of not naming these people. I just, if, if that's just how we want to proceed, so be it, I just don't view it as, uh, if, if anything, it's, um, it's, 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 it's beneficial to the the victims and the people who identify I'm, I, yep. but I don't I don't think so here's where I'll respectfully disagree you say you don't think it gives them notoriety but I don't think you're the target audience no though. but I mean, so but I think the the the, the issue like the, the triggers for these people and the trigger for the guy in Sandy Hook yeah whose name I I can't tell you right off the top of my head right now yeah like the, the triggers for these people are so random and specific to them that they don't they don't like they're not a trigger for any of us here. Okay, but here's here's I guess here's my point. I'm gonna name some names here, right? Just because we're we're having this conversation. But I know the name Dylan Roof uh, off the top of my head. I know the name Adam Lanza off the top of my head. I know the name Alexandra Bissonette off the top of my head. Like these are names that are are, are in here, right? And so um I don't want to know those names. I don't think I should know those names. I don't think my kids should know those yep. names, and I don't and I'm not saying that we pass a law like a publication ban so that remember when the entire Retea Parsons thing was was going on and there's actually a, a law uh, or sorry, a publication ban, a court order that says you can't say it. I'm not saying we should do that, but I'm talking as a 
Um, uh, and we'll never get this consensus for the right. I mean, there's yeah. a good conversation, but we'll never get this consensus. But what I'm saying is it shouldn't be the lead story before we even there's in, in New Zealand, 54 people die. And before we it's day four or five before we hear the, the, the victim, one victim's name. But for the first three, four days, we have the name of the guy, the perpetrator. And and I don't think there's any not- notoriety that comes from that. And I agree with you, Devin, that I don't. Right. But in the dark corners of the internet, in the yep. in the what do you call it, uh, the the dark net or whatever it's called, dark the, web, dark web that, whatever, yeah. there's an echo chamber in there, and and these things are. But they're going to get the name regardless. No, well, I, but the other thing, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but the ahead. other thing is, I don't want as a mem- as a Canadian, as a citizen of London, as a Canadian who is happy to, you know, is as proud as anything to call you, Ali, my fellow Canadian. Yes. I don't want a subsection of the population that is targeted in these acts to bear the burden of having to remember these names because it was, these people were slain in your, it, it could have just as easily been you as it was these people well, and, and, and you guys have to bear it, bear that burden. So, so exactly. And so I will never personally uh, forget the name Alexandra Bissonnette. I just won't. I, I probably remember that, that name till the day I die. Uh, and what I'm, what I'm saying is I wasn't victimized directly. Uh, because of what happened in Quebec City, I, I wasn't. I don't have family in Quebec City. I don't have friends. But when I see that, I see that as an attack on people who have names like me, who Correct. look like me, who pray like me. And so, um, yeah, of all the mass shootings that take place, I don't know what the guy's name was that shot up uh, uh, in Las Vegas or in Orlando. Or I, I don't right. But there are some times where a victimized community will always remember, and that's that. That name is one I'll remember. So and that's why I don't think we should be broadcasting. I want to continue thing. the conversation, and I'll ask the question I want to get to next, and we can answer it afterwards, and when, let the audience think about it as well. So, like Hitler. Like Hitler's yeah. name, like what, like do we stop mentioning? Because Hitler gets mentioned all the time. People are compared to Nazis all the time. Good point. Does that fall into this? If we're going to stop, if we're not going to name Alexander Bissonnette, yeah. do we not name Hitler? Do we not name Attila the Hun? Do we not name all these people throughout history who have done horrible, terrible things whose influence still exists to today? So we'll, t- we'll talk about that when we come back. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We continue on with the uh, Monday Roundtable. I'm extending the topic for this uh, second uh, segment of the second half hour, and we'll uh, after this we'll, we'll end the roundtable, but we got about five or six minutes here. I wanted to end on this. So my, my question now is how far, if, 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 we want, if we say there's, you know, an interest in not naming mass killers, not giving them fame, notoriety, well, how does... How far does that extend? Do we stop mentioning Hitler? Do we Stalin, Fidel Castro, all these people throughout history who have done terrible things? But anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world. Yep. And so is is Hitler someone we no longer mention or because he is someone who made a huge contribution to history, contribution in that... In Serving history. as an example yeah. for the, the filth. Not, not a yeah. good contribution, obviously. Exactly. I mean, it's regard, uh, obviously, but... Yep. Hitler it, it is a very interesting example and it is one that is appropriate to discuss when we are on these topics of mass shooters and these incidents that occur. I answer your question with the following. Can you imagine standing in front of a Holocaust survivor or a Holocaust victim if they were to come back from the dead, looking at them in the face and saying, it is our belief as a society that it is uh, best that we move forward not mentioning the killer, the, the, the organization, the movement that was responsible for the genocide of you and six million of your compatriots. And I think they would look us in the face and they would say that is 
not very smart if they were to uh, use those words. The fact is, and, and you used other examples, Stalin, uh, Mao in China, uh, all, you know, these are political leaders, first of all, so it's a little bit of a difference. They, were, they actually had some kind of groundswell of support. But the fact is that, that we do speak their name. We do infer, um, we, we, we make inferences based on the terrible example that they set and their actions in, uh, in deciding how we move forward as as a society and as a as a world really and it is important that we don't never forget that we always remember and that we we discuss these things so using that discussion that's where i go back to what we were just talking about with mm-hmm. ali is i do not want a subsection of people that i am proud to call my fellow canadians which we all should be proud to do that i do not want that subsection of people in this case being muslims who are t- targeted to have to bear the burden of understanding this person's name, seeing those videos, seeing those images alone. That is not what we need. In fact, as a country and as people who are going to be, you know, building bridges amongst communities and, and forging towards an, a collective identity of being Canadian or American or whatever you'd like to do, it is important that we do share those burdens. And we do remember the bad just as much as we celebrate the good so as to not repeat it again. I think we're. I think we're. If we look at the Hitler or the Stalin or the, you know, Paul Pot. I think we we're saying off air and or, or, or Genghis Kong or you know whoever whatever, you yeah. know, uh, name from Mao. history. Mao exactly. Uh, I I think it's a little bit different. Uh, and and Nathan touched on it. Uh, insofar as, uh, there, there's a political context. They're political leaders. They're leaders of a country. They're leaders of uh, a party. They're leaders of, and so I feel like the dynamic um as deplorable and as depraved and as sick and twisted and maniacal the the acts are um uh, i feel that the way we examine them in a historical and or educational context almost necessitates us uh needing to know what the they name carried is. out their oh, evil right. in the name of the state whereas some of these are right are not as, as opposed to uh, some far right nationalist or some religion religiously inspired terrorist or, or you know it's even who the way has I no use, political but power. even the way, by the way the, my own words there far right, right nationalist religiously inspired terrorist they're both terrorists as far as I'm concerned Correct. but but they're if they're almost um, they're emblematic of the of the of one and whereas the other one is the head of the other right and so uh, we got uh, two minutes before yeah. we're going to run out of time so this is almost an unfair part to bring up but. Uh, I, I would I would tend to agree with you guys, but also so then it brings me back to where we kind of started this with like what New Zealand, Quebec City, all these other Pittsburgh yeah. have have in common is like white nationalism on the rise as something we see around the world. So mm-hmm. in the larger content, like in the history books, when they start talking about you know the the rise of white nationalism in this time and in the story's not yet finished, mm-hmm. do we? Like, is is it just enough to say those instances or the perpetrators involved and the circumstances involved? So, that, so well, like, it's if, a, if it's world events or a different it's important, piece, which I would agree in, with the leaders, then it kind of brings me back right. to where we started. It's always important to understand the context, in, not the context, the inspiration that these people uh, cite as, as well, the, as their inspiration for uh, carrying out these acts. It is different, as you say. Uh, for somebody like a Stalin or a Hitler or a Mao, because they were carrying out their, you know, evil in the name of the state, which they were afforded 
um, by way of whatever the people of the country decided. So it's important to understand those histories and, and beyond in our own. Um, but in isolated incidents, it is a little bit different. And I say isolated incidents, just not evil being taken or uh, carried out in the name of the state. You know what? Ask, ask yourselves one question. If they don't print the person's name or don't publicize the name, will it stop this type of thing from happening? And I don't think it will. So does it make a difference? I don't think it does. It, it may not eliminate it, but it may mitigate it. I, I, the benefit what, is I, more to the victims and the people who are traumatized, even from afar, to mm-hmm. me, rather than stopping it. Man, but l- listen, so just, got, I don't. Ten but, seconds, right? Why do we stop advertising the guys who run onto the field at the Rogers Center during a Blue Jays game? They don't. They don't. <laughs> no, but we don't. We don't put them on TV. We don't name them. They don't show them anymore. You know, running around second because you don't want to encourage copycats to say, "Hey, look, I can get my ten seconds by rounding second base and looking like a jackass on TV." Right. Uh, is jackass politically correct? Well, can I say well, that? Well, it's too late. Yeah, but some, but it's the same. Hot. It's the same basic premise. As far as I'm concerned. We need to wrap it there. Appreciate you guys coming in. We'll uh, break. We come back. We'll wrap up the show. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You have five. Game three of the Knights in Storm you can hear on 980 CFPL. Knights up uh, 2-0 in the second round series. Pre-game 6.30, puck drop at 7 o'clock. Mike Stubbs has to call for you. My thanks to Dr. James Brophy, Robert Huber, Matt Hoffman, Jimmy Anchula, Ali Chabar, Nathan Crancy, and Roger Crancy for coming on the show. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for his work on the program. Have a great day. We'll be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock.